is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. We're just heading for halfway through the reading year. So, have you nabbed your best read of the year yet? That one book that when you close it, you think it will be hard to find a better read this year. If not, no fear. There are still six months to go, and we have a pile of great new book options to share with you today. Some that might help you dig up your best read for 2022. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. We'll be spending the next hour chatting about books, reviewing books, and listening to great author interviews. We're starting this month's show with Beryl Eichenberger, who read Hammerman by Mike Nichol. Mike has written more than 24 books. In fact, I think he's written a lot more than 24 books. He's a veteran of the pen and the page. He knows how to build great tension and characters that leap off the page. And his current and local eye is what makes him easily one of South Africa's greatest crime authors. He's also been translated and published in multiple languages. I can always highly recommend any Mike Nickel book for an unputdownable read. Let's see if Beryl agrees. Shadows. We all have a shadow, whether physical or metaphorical. They can be the darkness of a past reaching out to grasp the present or compromising and reshaping the future. It is this theme that Mike Nichol covers in his latest crime thriller, Hammerman, A Walking Shadow. As he takes you behind the shadowy curtain of spooks, international intrigue, murder and mayhem, this is a masterclass in crime writing. Nichol has the ability to peer beneath those shadows, dissecting them and crafting them into a story that you will race through, recognizing characters and situations. It's gripping and tense, demanding to be read in one sitting. This is the fifth and final novel in the series that features private investigator Fish Pescado and lawyer Vicky Khan, the Indian Khan, not the Jewish. Fish is a surfing dude, riding the next wave, fearless, looking out for the next case. Vicky, his lover, former spook with the state security agency, Cape Town is their home. The cast of characters is brilliantly etched with Nichols' sharp observation of each twitch of the unique South African psyche. Memorable, fully fleshed, colorful, lovable and funny, there's lots of humor in the novel. We meet gangsters, politicians, spooks, vagrants, and they become erstwhile companions as the novel gains pace. So what if the assassination of the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palm in 1986 have to do with the present? Was it a South African hit? A hammerman? And why would it be of interest today? So many questions. 2017, and Fish has a couple of sidelines to his PI business, cannabis oil being one of them. The professor, one of his clients, is in trouble in gangland Mannenberg, so it's Fish to the rescue. Colonel Andre Jacobs, AJ, is talking the gang leaders down. An interfering politician is demanding to be part of the process. Just another day in the war zones at the Cape Flats. But when Fish sees a known spook on the scene, well, that's something to ponder on and discuss with Vicky. Then the bodies start piling up. A beautiful female in Stronton team. The annoying politician meets his end outside Parliament. His number two next on the body count an ANC cabinet minister. And when the cop, AJ, is found assassinated in his car, something is going on. And while there are seemingly no links, someone is cleaning up. But why? 
AJ's wife wants answers, and it's up to Fritz to find them. It's convoluted, so keep your wits about you as you read. You're kept on your toes as you link the clues, unravel the strands and the intel that rolls out. Fish and Vicky risk everything to reach the truth, but Vicky is the target too, and the Avery is definitely no birdcage. The shadows lengthen, revealing a Belgian spy, the mysterious and remorseless voice, apartheid masters and a rogue agent, fast and furious from the luxury of the V&A waterfront to remote farms, industrial estates, retirement villages, Fish and Vicky are chasing shadows with devastating consequences. Nichols' skill is keeping your interests sharp. Staccato sentences, short chapters. It feels like riding a giant wave, peaking and then taking you crashing into the shore. As a writer and journalist, he is adept at blending fact and fiction. His fertile imagination takes those strands of chatter, scrapes the linings of our violent and restricted past, the political shenanigans of the present, and brings them all together in a highly plausible story. It's difficult letting go, but perhaps Fisher's backyard dweller, Janet, says it the best. No, hey, what is it, Mr. Fish? You're driving off into the yonder white blue for the cherry of your lifetime. That's a good thing, all matters considered. Miss Vicky's been comatose for these weeks. A bit of fresh air is what the doctor ordered. And sorry about the accent. Nicole nails it again with a story that will leave you sideswiped. Settle in for the wave of your life. Hammerman is by Mike Nicole and is published by a movie. Our second reviewer in today's show is Beverly Rose Miller, who joins us with reviews of two bestsellers. A tale of two books, one could say. Of the two novels I'm reviewing today, one was rather good and the other wasn't, even though they are both listed as bestsellers. And it's interesting to unpack why a novel works or doesn't, and why similar plots can and have achieved greatness in the hands of more skilled writers. The better of the two is The Murders at Fleet House by Lucinda Riley, a clever, well-crafted story set in a favourite petri dish of class-conscious England. A public, that is private school, in Norfolk, brimming with the usual anxious newbie schoolboys and lauded over by rugger-playing hearties. Charlie is a nasty 18-year-old in Fleet House, given to bullying the junior boys. There's also a very private Donish master, a recognised expert in Latin, whose background includes a long-ago secret love affair with a beautiful male student at college and a plonk of a man determined to take over the wife and son of an alcoholic rival. All three die within a short space of time at the school, and suddenly St. Stephen's is under the spotlight, mainly by the recently divorced, beautiful and bright Detective Jazz Hunter, seconded from her rural retreat to sort out the complicated threads of how the three deaths are connected. The characters are well-drawn and memorable, and the puzzle of the deaths is not solved until near the very end, so it keeps the tension and narrative flowing in a well-crafted way. The Irish author Lucinda Riley died last year of cancer. She's the best-selling writer of the Seven Sisters series. The other novel is, I think, a failure, and that's quite surprising, given the author. Dame Stella Remington was Director General of MI5, the first woman to hold that position, and is the author of many novels. So I approached The Devil's Bargain with certain expectations, which were sadly not met. 
We are asked to believe that a Russian agent, now named Peter Robinson, has become able as an adult to relocate to English England so seamlessly that he becomes a city councillor and then a member of parliament with an eye to serving on the defence committee. He's smooth, rich and single. Only one man knows his secret, a former special branch policeman who naively took what he later realised was a bribe and rather than risking jail becomes Robinson's chauffeur. There are also a number of bright young women wound into the plot, all friends or connected to American or British authorities. With their help, who will get to Robinson first? The Allies or the Russians who are trying to shut their former agent down? Oh, not only are the characters superficial, but it was so depressingly predictable that I could have left out the whole last section and avoided some of the awful clichés. The plots of both novels reminded me quite forcibly of John le Carre's masterly work. The Murders at Fleet House recalled the marvellously dark second novel of his, a murder of quality, brimming with beady vicious masters and their frustrated wives conspiring at a classy private school. The second book, The Devil's Bargain, about the Russian spy, fails dismally when set beside Le Carre's classic novel on that very subject, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, one of the great George Smiley series, all of which are essential reading. If you've never had the pleasure of reading them, then I envy you. Having reread them very often, I never tire of their brilliance. I've been talking about The Murders at Fleet House by Lucinda Riley and The Devil's Bargain by Stella Remington. And this is Soon It's Going to Rain, sung by Barbara Streisand from the musical The Fantastics, right here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Soon it's gonna rain. What will we do? 
Safra Musicanth is up next, a grade 12 student at Abbott's College. Safra still finds time in her busy study schedule to read. Safra was telling me about a book called Heartstopper by Alice Oseman, gaining a lot of attention due to the Netflix adaptation. So we thought she could tell you about it too. Why am I staying up this late to read Heartstopper? This can't be healthy. If it were anything else, I would tell you to go to bed, but it's Heartstopper, and I've definitely been there as well. These are texts I sent my friend a few nights ago. I woke up the next morning slightly exhausted but with a massive smile on my face. You might have heard of Heartstopper because of the recent Netflix adaptation, but I'm here to tell you that the graphic novel series by Alice Oseman is equally touching. This book has moved so many people because at our core, we all just want what Nick and Charlie have. Reading this book is like receiving a warm hug from your favourite person. The characters begin to feel like your friends and the book begins to feel like home. Heartstopper is a graphic novel series with four volumes. It follows the friendship and evolving romance between Nick and Charlie. While heartwarming, it also tackles serious issues such as homophobia, bullying and mental illness. Trigger warnings are included before mentioning things like eating disorders to create a safe and containing reader-friendly experience. The graphics help us to fully emerge ourselves in the wondrous world of Nick and Charlie. There's no shortage of coming of age novels out there. However, this one feels different. Besides the obvious of it being a comic book, it also seems to really understand the nuances of what it means to be a queer teenager in the 21st century. Alice Oseman did an incredible job creating such diverse characters, including characters of all sexual orientations, gender identities and ethnic backgrounds, ensuring that whoever's reading it feels seen and represented in the Heartstopper universe. This book is so easy to read and provides the perfect escape. You could easily read all four books in a few days, but I recommend you try and savour them for as long as you can. Since it's almost lunchtime, Philippa Sheffitz, a cookbook writer in her own right, is here to tell us about a new cookbook called My Station Street Kitchen by Manhart Jaber, published by Penguin Books. My Station Street Kitchen by Meinhard Joubert, published by Penguin. A book dedicated to the author's mother must be charming, and it is, but the recipes from the menus at 24 Station Street are more than charming. Written by a cook dedicated to his craft, it's a deliciously different collection. There are cocktails and canapes to start. Meinhard always credits his inspiration Baked lemons with anchovies, basil, cherry tomatoes and goat's milk cheese originated in a Jamie Oliver recipe. The smoothness of avocado hummus with garlic and lemon prawns uses hot cooked chickpeas as in an Ottolenghi recipe. Breads and butters includes a charcoal ciabatta using activated charcoal powder. There are dressings, emulsions and mayo, salads and soups and starters. St. Joseph's salad with buffalo mozzarella, exotic tomatoes and basil pays homage to St. Joseph, the patron saint of goat and sheep herders. Georgian lamb tongue with beetroot chutney, first tasted in St. Petersburg, Russia and never forgotten. There's coffee roasted snook with cumin, coriander and smoked paprika, served with cinnamon and ginger sweet potato in the generous main meal section. Deboned and stuffed lamb rib 
with dates, almonds and apricots, Asian beef short ribs on the braai, butter chicken with orange sweet potatoes and mint yogurt. Desserts include an Italian dark chocolate cake, originally published in the River Cafe cookbook by Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers. Polenta cake with olive oil and green grapes, first developed when he chef for KWV. The Easy Fig ice cream is so simple, so clever. First came a career as a ballet dancer. Part-time work introduced him to the restaurant industry and he fell in love with it. He spent five years running a restaurant in Rebecca Steel, Bar Bar Black Sheep. The owner, Anton Espost, introduced him to authentic Mediterranean-style peasant cooking using local ingredients and wine. Winning the cooking series for an Afrikaans reality cooking show on DSTV CakeNet changed his life. He was introduced to reinvented South African heritage cooking throughout the country. He wrote and styled two cookbooks for Kokodua and Makiki, another cooking series. Minot nostalgically recalls growing up on a farm. Tempelhof in the Eastern Free State. Vivid memories of the green foothills and dark Maluti mountains. There was an abundance of freshly picked fruit and vegetables. No shortage of cooks. His mother plus two grandmothers. Plus plenty of guests to enjoy free state hospitality. Today at his home restaurant, Manat loves to share his kitchen table in his rooftop kitchen with the guests. You're listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And I'm your host, Paige Nick. Some music now with just Walking in the Rain by Johnny Ray. As our regular listeners already know, all the music for this show is selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Woods. Thanks, you guys. As always, you've done such a magic music job. Just walking in the rain Getting soaking wet
here on Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And now we welcome our nature book reviewer, John Hanks. This month, John's reviewing a book called Rhino War by Major General Johann Joester and Tony Park. Last week, I was sent a report from one of my colleagues about the appalling ongoing slaughter of over 120 rhinos for their horns in Susluriam Falosi Game Reserve in KwaZulu-Natal, the oldest proclaimed reserve in Africa and a protected area that once had the reputation of being an integral part of the best-run conservation agencies in Africa. What has gone wrong there? When I saw a new book entitled Rhino War, written by retired Major General Johann Juster, with the help of best-selling author Tony Park, and with an insert on the front cover stating a general's bold strategy in the Kruger National Park, I'm sure that I will be one of many conservationists who will want to know if this war, as it was and still is being called, can be won, and if Houston's approach can and should be applied elsewhere. Rhino War is a remarkably honest account of the successes and failures, too, of Houston's commitment to combat rhino poaching in the Kruger National Park, which, in 2012, was spiralling out of control. In that year, he was appointed as the commanding officer special projects for Kruger, with a mandate to convert Kruger's existing rangers into a paramilitary force to fight the poachers. It was the most controversial appointment, and it was resented and met with open hostility by many of the rangers and the police force working with them. Not surprisingly, they wanted to know how on earth could a 60-year-old retired white army general with a professional life stretching back over the years at the height of the apartheid regime and with no conservation experience, tell them how to do their job. Eustace's first task was to get to know the people under his command, and he was surprised and disappointed to see how many of the rangers were demoralised through lack of support, inadequate housing and basic equipment, and most importantly, poorly trained to fight what was becoming a cross-border guerrilla war with well-armed poachers crossing into South Africa from Mozambique. He promised to do all he could to improve their basic working conditions, but made few friends with his constant demands on the Sand Park's bureaucracy for better equipment. As a military man, he was infuriated by how many of the rangers made little attempt to look after their dirty and untidy living quarters and the equipment issued to them, and all too often did not respect getting a firm dressing down. How he overcame these challenges to improve operational efficiencies and how he introduced a range of logistics to move the staff to become a paramilitary force with air support from fixed wing to helicopters is told with transparency and honesty, with no attempt to hide the ongoing criticism he was receiving that the number of rhinos being killed was still rising. 
used to continue to be appalled by the brutality of the killings he encountered, and he had growing empathy for the stress the staff under his control were facing on a daily basis, from witnessing often horrendous mutilation of rhinos to being threatened themselves when in contact with poachers. Realising his operational activities were seriously underfunded, he had to give lots of attention to raising funds, starting with a billionaire American philanthropist, Howard Buffett. And in addition, he had to host visiting VIPs and an often critical press contingent. By any standards, a major distraction from managing a paramilitary force. Demands on his time were exceptional and stressful. And throughout the book, he gives praise and recognition to the support he received, particularly from his wife, Arena, and a growing number of local and international NGOs and celebrities. Although he recognised that increasing poverty and unemployment in the areas adjacent to Kruger are providing ideal localities to recruit poachers who will risk their lives to kill a rhino for a cash payment, I was disappointed that he did not give more attention to tackling the syndicates driving the poaching a chain running from the middlemen who recruit and make payments to the real crooks higher up, who then pay for the rhino horns to be moved and sold in the far east of Yemen. The harsh reality is that with far too little national commitment in South Africa to address sustainable options to mitigate the grinding poverty of these rural areas, including making sure that local communities receive financial and other benefits from protected areas, and with the people driving the illegal trade continuing to operate with impunity, no matter how good a paramilitary force becomes, it's difficult to see how the war can be run. Regrettably, the same can be said of introducing a similar approach in KwaZulu-Natal. Nevertheless, Johann Juster deserves credit for the gallant effort to transform and equip the existing rangers in the Kruger National Park and for sticking to an assignment with an admirable level of grit and determination. The title of the book again is Rhino War. It's written by Johann Juster with Tony Park. It's published by Pan Macmillan in South Africa and you can buy a copy for 358 rand. And now we turn to a new book that comes straight from the soil. This month on the show, we have two segments that focus on organizations doing the most incredible work in our communities that also have wonderful links to books. If you haven't heard of it before, Soil for Life is a Cape Town-based organization that teaches people in an under-resourced communities how to grow their own food, improve their health and well-being, nurture and protect the environment. But how is this linked to books? Well, it starts with another great organization called Women's Zone designed to promote and unite women in Cape Town, and they're turning 10 this year, while Soil for Life is turning 20. So now Women's Zone and Soil for Life are partnered to produce a book called Women of Soil, Changing Lives. Women of Soil, Changing Lives explains the work of both organizations, but primarily it features the stories of 10 women whose lives have been heavily impacted by Soil for Life. So next up, Beryl Eichenberger joins us on the show with talented Nancy Richards, who works closely with Women's Zone, to tell us about these two wonderful organizations and more importantly about this book. Over to you, Beryl, and welcome back to the show, Nancy. Thank you so much for coming in this morning. Perhaps let's start at the beginning, Nancy, and tell us the how and the why this book came about and the relationship between Soil for Life and Woman's Zone. Oh, gosh, thanks, Beryl. It's actually quite a long story, but let me keep it short. The coincidence was that Woman's Zone turned 10 years old this year, 
And when we approached Soil for Life, blow me down, we discovered that Soil for Life turned 20. So what an unbelievably, a lovely little bit mm-hmm. of happenstance. So we thought about uh, marking both occasions with a book. And because we'd turned 10, and because Soil for Life work not exclusively, but primarily with women, we thought, let's take 10 women and let's hear their stories. So what we did, we went to see 10 women in their different communities and heard their stories, which in itself was your, was, mm-hmm. it was really, really very powerful, very moving, if I can say. And we saw what they did and we saw how the, the, actually what we saw was how their lives had been changed. I mean, you heard what Natasha there said. Natasha was one of 10 women and their lives were just so impacted, um, which isn't to say that their lives were all bad, but just having something to do watching something grow. You know, they very often compare watching the plants and the seeds grow to birthing a child and watching a child grow. And I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. that's such a lovely comparison. So these women's lives have been so positively changed. Not only that, they're able to put food on the table. Absolutely. We've got some clips from one of the contributors to the book. So let's listen to what Natasha DeLue has to say. Hi there, I'm Natasha DeLille from the retreat area and the first time I started work, going workshops with Pat Featherston was from 2013 when I really, really learned about planting because I had no knowledge at all and Pat really taught us from how to treat our soil and how seeds grow and how plants grow and how the environment really needs us as warriors, you know, to to save the earth. And from that time when I started with, with Soil for Life in 2013, everything just changed. My whole perspective of life changed. Soil for Life has certainly impacted and changed lives, but, but Women's Own is also about health in terms of our relationships with other communities. Won't you give us a short background on what Women's Own has been achieving in the last 10 years and perhaps also what you've learnt? <laughs> How long have you got? Well, I mean, I personally have learnt a huge amount, but I've learnt that the most important thing is to go with the flow and mm-hmm. be, let things happen, pardon the pun, organically. Whatever the ideas, whatever the women who come in to get involved with Women's Own have brought to us, it's sort of kind of how we've gone. But the synergy between Soil for Life and Women's Own learning things and growing things is because the women who are working with their gardens have they've sort of networked they've built their own you know the roots their own, if you own like little it. communities exactly. as well yes so they've, they've sort of networked and just by sharing ideas and information and seedlings and plants and, and knowledge they have formed this sort of network of community and ironically although we hadn't seen it at the time that's what Women's Own intends to do yes. is to bring women together it's about support isn't it oh utterly Very one much of my so. best images through this whole thing was going to one of the communities and two women whose gardens were not far away from each other were having a hug and they just yes. <laughs> they were they were friends and I thought it's what it's all about you know, oh sharing absolutely so let's listen to Natasha and she's going to tell us a little bit of what she was taught so what I was taught was is to use the minimal space that you have plant what you are eating in the house and not plant stuff that you don't eat or how can I say that you're not going to use and then also use even the vertical space like on a wall you can plant up there and 
also companion planting so companion planting was something also very new to me i was just thinking okay if you plant a lot of cabbages that was it but i never knew if you plant cabbages and then you plant garlic or onions in between they actually help each other and that was amazing to me that i never knew that plants help each other i love the idea of companion planting because it was something that i actually didn't realize and Woman's Own creates companions as well but the hope is the book will become a companion in the home so what can readers expect in the book and how can FMR listeners contribute hmm, I like your companionship analogy there yes it definitely works I mean I can tell you I learned a huge amount not mm -hmm. just about companion planting but about how to work with bugs and the idea is that you don't kill the bugs you deter them oh. <laughs> all sorts of little you know interesting things like you know what how comfy and those works. tips will be in the book as well won't the they? tips will be in the book hopefully because it's in design stages as we speak hopefully there'll also be space for people to write notes mm -hmm. so that they can make their own notes because that's very important plus there are recipes each one of the women have we've given recipes that found a of Soil for Life, Featherstone, she compiled a book of recipes and we've included some of those as well. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a huge learning curve. I mean, I, you know, I don't pretend to profess to be any sort of a gardener, but my goodness, I thought I knew a bit, but now I know a whole lot more. No, because one of Pat's things was, and she had a lovely maxim, it was healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people, Absolutely. which just makes so much sense. So look after your soil. It will look after your plants and my goodness me, you'll have nice healthy vegetables that will feed your body and your soul as well. Absolutely. I love it. Well, on the subject of loving it, you know, if anybody loves the idea of this book, they too can contribute because we need to raise some money to actually produce it. So if anybody would like to, they can donate a thousand rand for which they will get their name in the book and for which they will get a copy. So we're hoping that if people would like to do that, they can contact us. They can find us on Facebook, Woman's Own Cape Town, Woman's Own CT, or send us an email, info at womanszonect.co.za, info at womanszonect.za, with a thousand rand, if you can. That would be absolutely wonderful. But... The book will be launched on August the 8th at the Arts Cape Women's Festival. Proceeds will be going back to the NPOs to continue their great work. And perhaps the last word is from Natasha. My dream is to have and my community have a big piece of plot. I would like to start vegetable garden for the community. There's a lot of seniors that are just sitting at home, also mothers that don't have work. I would like to get them involved so they can take some of the vegetables home and feed their family or the food that we cook. I want to feed the community with that vegetable. So that is my dream that I want to do. Thank you so much, Natasha, Beryl and Nancy. The book is called Women of Soil Changing Lives and we look forward to having a review of it right here on the show when it's launched in August. What a wonderful initiative and what a wonderful dream, Natasha. Count me in. And from green fingers to music. But a quick note here. If you've missed any of the book titles, web addresses or information on today's show, please know that the entire show is available on fmr.co.za as a downloadable podcast. I'm singing in just singing in the rain What a glorious feeling I'm happy again I'm laughing at 
dark up above The sun's in my heart And I'm ready for love Let the stormy clouds chase Everyone from the place Come on with the rain I've a smile on my face I'll walk down the lane With a happy refrain And I'm singing, just singing in Singing in the Rain from the film Singing in the Rain by Doris Day. We have a new reviewer on the show today, but she has a name you might recognize from other programming right here on Fine Music Radio. Shirley Gueller is the marketing communications executive at the Cape Town Philharmonic. Basically, she is to music what we are to books. Welcome to the show, Shirley. What have you been reading? When you hear the name Monica Ali, you probably think minorities, clashes of culture, and so on, and you'd be right. In her latest novel, Love, Marriage, she's got all that covered and more. The expected clash of cultures is not with crashing symbols, but a fusion of all that's best, except that her described world is one of contrasts of infidelity and illegitimacy, rage, rape, and racism. It's one of, of microaggression, addiction, abandonment, an ultimate adaptation, a touch of lesbianism and the deception that underpins the main relationships. And all of that, of course, underlines the development of each character, who could be your friend or neighbor, for so well do you get to know them, begin to understand them, and perhaps even identify with one of them. Slowly, all the levels get revealed, and as each one battles with truths so long hidden... Ali's descriptions are quite delicious, her observations powerful, and in hindsight obvious. Cancer made you popular, is how Yasmin Gorami thinks of the noisy ward with her patients during visiting hours. And how can you not be drawn in when she tells you that an English family would turn up at quarter to eight, an Indian family would arrive any time after nine, only the Goramis would turn up an entire anxious hour before they were expected. This is part of the concern that plagues Yasmin, who, although her medical studies and impending marriage were not enough, worries about the two families from two hemispheres meeting for the first time. She need not have feared. 
The way her mother was embraced introduces another set of dynamics in which all the relationships change beyond recognition before they are repaired and remade. Well, most of them anyway. Her father's anger at his son's anger needs to be resolved. Islamophobia and how it affects them needs to be addressed. And comments like, You speak English well to a person clearly with roots in another country but born and brought up in the UK needs a deeper discussion. You know what you're in for when you see how cleverly she contrasts the style of the upper-class Harriet, Yasmin's future mother-in-law, initially a woman of the times admired for independence and openness, with the most grounded of all, Lucy. Lucy is the daughter of a window cleaner who died when she was little and she is now hurled into the families. Then there is the differing style of the doctors, the father Baba, as well as the quintessential English boss doctor and the two new doctors, Joe and Yasmin, engaged in love and ready for marriage. But are they? In dissecting the four marriages, one made in India, one potential, one expedient and one that never was, Ali goes deep into the psyche of many fragile, even wounded people, with truth only outing itself at the very end. Well, love is just another word. As you would expect, it's a superb read and a layered one. We can't escape who we are. Thank you, Shirley. We hope you'll join us again on Book Choice right here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. The Monica Ali book you mentioned has had a ton of international press, and it sounds fascinating. Over the last few months, we've mentioned the bookery a fair amount on this show. They're the most fantastic organization. They build and stock libraries in schools that really need them. So we thought it would be a great idea to chat to them in a bit more depth about the work they're doing, because it's just so important. Vanessa Levenstein is up next chatting to Lunga Nkadolo, the bookery's managing director. Welcome to the show. Every child deserves to experience the power and the joy of reading. In South Africa, about 74% of public schools don't have libraries. Joining us today on Book Choice is Lunga Nkadolo, managing director of the bookery. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Will you tell us a bit about the bookery, please? Okay. The Bookery is an NGO that's focused on creating libraries in previously under-resourced schools. Our focus is setting up of the libraries and then working together with the school. We then recruit a young youth unemployed within the community. We then train them and then we support them in running and facilitating library activities and classes for the learners in that school. That sounds amazing. You do a lot of things on one project, it would appear. How many school libraries have you set up? We've set up over 89 libraries within the Eastern Cape, Gauteng and the Western Cape. How do you go about setting up a school library? Where does it begin? So it starts with us receiving funding and donations to set up a library. And then we have a database that has potential schools that we could work with. So these schools are either schools that have approached us requesting assistance in setting up a library or schools that have been suggested to us by partners or other corporates. We then work with the school in helping them set up this library, refurbishing a room or just supplying them with books. And then we will then, from our head office, cover catalogue about 3,500 to 4,000 books to go into the library. And then after we've completed that stage, we then work towards the recruitment process of what we call a library assistant who will work in the library to ensure that it doesn't become a white elephant, that activities and learners are taking place and going to the library. 
I've got two questions in one now. The first one is where do your books come from and are you looking for books in any specific language? Okay, mostly our books are donated. We accept donations from individuals, from publishing houses that help us continue the work that we are doing. And then in terms of languages, because we are now currently in just three provinces, our main focus is Isitosa, Zulu, Sutu, and Afrikaans, and also English. But we are geared at supplying our libraries with books that the learners can identify. I think in 2021, we had a focus of just having a book drive where we would be purchasing intentionally books written by South African authors in our South African languages so that the learners could identify with the books. Absolutely, that's so important to see themselves reflected in the book. How long does it take to set up a library or is that how long is a piece of string question? So I would say it's between three to four months once we've received funding because then the process that we as the organization have to go through like administrative processes, we then select a school, have to meet with the school management to discuss the terms and conditions of us partnering and then there's the recruitment of contractors and the recruitment of a library assistant and the training. So we would like to say that it's between three to four months. That's great. How can the public get involved? How can we help? Oh, the public can get involved, one, by donating age-appropriate books to the bookery, suitable for primary, mostly, and high school learners. And then um, they can also volunteer within the organization because we need a lot of people to help us cover 4,000 books per school. And also, if there's a person who has the funds, can donate to the bookery, can visit our website on www.thebookery.org.za. We have a donation page there. And that would help us either support a library assistant or set up a new library altogether. Can we add you as a beneficiary to my school card? Yes, yes, you can. You can. We are registered on my school card. Okay, that's great. You are doing such important work, and they say we learn to read and then read to learn. Without a library, how can any of this be possible? So thank you so much to donate books or funds or give of your time or make them a my school card beneficiary. Visit thebookery.org.za. I urge you to check out the work they do and support them in any way you can, even if it's just by telling a fellow book lover about them. Because here at Book Choice, we couldn't agree more that, as they say, every child deserves to experience the power and the joy of reading. And if we don't support the bookery, where will our future readers and listeners of this show come from? Just a little rain Falling all around The grass lifts its head To the heavenly sun Just a little rain Just a little rain What have they done to the rain? Just a little boy Standing in the rain The gentle rain that falls for years And the grass is gone The boy disappears 
was What Have They Done to the Rain, sung by The Searchers. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. In our final segment of the show, we have an interesting review of a book and an interview with the author of that book. Anthony Frijon tells us about Lost on the Map by Brian Rostron, and straight after that, we're joined by Philip Todras, who chatted to the author Brian Rostron about the book in our studios at FMR. Lost on the Map by Brian Rostron is a remarkable, engrossing book in many ways. A superbly researched family history told with honesty, an account of the complexity of two families who arrived in South Africa shortly after the Boer War, one from Australia, the other from England. William Rostron, a working-class printer from Stockport, Lancashire, was the first to arrive in 1903, followed two years later by Lewis Rose MacLeod. Lewis Rose, as he preferred to be known, had made a name for himself as a journalist in Sydney, and like William Rostron, the attraction of the Johannesburg goldfields presented the possibility of wealth. This was a city where fabulously wealthy one day, and broke the next, wasn't unusual. Throughout the book underlying the narrative is colonialism and, behind colonialism, greed and racism. This was the age of land-grabbing, conquest, and the search, lust, for riches. Perhaps the indigenous people benefited from their master's occupation of their lands, but at what price? In 1907, Rose was offered the editorship of the Sunday Times. Only a year old, the Sunday Times had the biggest circulation of any weekly newspaper in South Africa. Of his life, Brian Rostron uncovered a vast amount of information. Sadly, of his grandfather, there wasn't as much to be found. His son, Frank, was reluctant to talk of him. When Bill abandoned his wife and son, Frank refused to speak to him again. Frank went on to make a name for himself as a journalist on the Star, covering the 1932 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, and later the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. After the war, in which Frank Rostron covered many major theatres of conflict, he was asked to write a book about his experiences as a war correspondent. 
but like so many journalists, he never did, needing the pressure of a deadline. He was sent out to South Africa from London to cover the royal tour in 1947. It was at this time he met Barbara Rostron. They married, and in 1948, Brian Rostron was born in Hillbrow. At a very young age, subconsciously, he became aware of the other South Africa. Apartheid had drawn imaginary lines between the races. As he wrote, and my mother, however attentively, crossed that imaginary frontier, and memorably took me with her. Unsurprisingly, Brian became a journalist. On leaving South Africa to avoid compulsory military service, he travelled and worked in Italy, America and the UK. Finally, coming home in 1994. To quote from his book, he writes, Many white South Africans seem not to wish to peer too closely into the past. Read this book, and perhaps you'll discover something about yourself. Brian Rostron takes us on his personal journey of discovery. Insightful, entertaining, funny, and sad. Superbly crafted. Lost on the Map by Brian Rostron, published by Bookstorm. I can't praise it too highly. Lost on the Map, a memoir of colonial illusions by Brian Rostron. And I have the man himself. And I'm not going to argue with Christopher Hope when he says one of the best memoirs ever out of South Africa. That's a compliment indeed. And it goes back quite some time to your forebearers, Captain Samuel Wallace, and trips to Tahiti in the 1700s. Can you tell us what got you into finding out about your family's history and some of the inconvenient truths? Well, I mean, you know, when one's much younger, uh, you don't really pay much attention. So these were just stories that I'd sort of vaguely heard over the years. Uh, and before I was away from South Africa for 28 years, and just before coming back, I used to go to the British Library to look up um, you know, the, the accounts of early explorers in Southern Africa. And it occurred to me to look up this ancestor, Captain Samuel Wallace, who was the first European to discover... Uh, as it were, Tahiti in 1767, and I was always told that he was eaten by the Queen of Tahiti. So I looked it up, and he, he wasn't. He, he died of old age in Cornwall. So then I thought, that's interesting. I'm going to look into this. And that's really where it all began. Well, when you say look into it as a journalist and with six books behind your name, I'm sure you had all the abilities to do the processing. And tell us a little bit about that process of discovery? Well, it was actually quite a long process, really over 25 years, because I didn't really have idea, any idea where it was going to lead to. So in one way, my one thought regarding South Africa is that my one grandfather, my maternal grandfather, edited two newspapers, first the Sunday Times, uh, 1907 to 1910, and then the Rond Daily Mail from 1924 to 1942. Before the Rond Daily Mail was the famous campaign, it was the voice of the landlords. And my other grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was a working-class printer who printed uh, the newspapers for the early South African Communist Party. Now, that's interesting. Two opposite ends. I, I knew neither grandfather. They were both dead by the time I was born, but I that was interesting. That's a way of looking into some of that South African history, and gradually it expanded. And um, and then my daughter, who was born and 
brought up in Italy, emigrated with her partner and our grandson to Australia, and suddenly I discovered that in the 1830s, uh, four brothers who were all carpenters immigrated to Australia, and one became the richest man in Australia. I, I knew nothing about this. It was riveting. And what you also found out about the fact that the British had the ability to go where they wanted to. That's what really struck home to me. I, 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 I read quite a lot of history and I knew about the empire, but really when I looked into all these people who were all very humble, carpenters, working class people, or, or, or modestly professional, but until 1914 with the introduction for the first time of passports, all my ancestors could go as long as they had steerage class, they could go pretty well anywhere they wanted to in the world and settle, irrespective of who already lived there. And that was a reflection on what you discovered about colonialism. Perhaps you'd like to make one or two comments about that and your discomfort? Well, I think, it, 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 no, clearly, um, I, I think that history really hasn't been uncovered properly. And so to, to read about it from my own relatives and read some of the uh, attitudes that they had, one distant relative um, who, who caused a great scandal in China in the early 20th century wrote a book called The Question of Colour, which was printed in, in 1910. And, I mean, you know, to read it today, it's... <laughs> terribly shocking. And then my other grandfather, my grandfather, who was the editor of the Sunday Times in 1907 to 1910, in the lead up to the Act of Union, the big debate was, you know, would the Cape Coloured franchise be included? And, you know, it, it really was difficult to read his expression of unpleasant racist epithets. It was, it was uncomfortable. And how do you feel now about where we are at present and are we at the end of that or rethinking that or reimagining some of the things that we shouldn't even think about? Well, I think, you know, it's really a matter of people say, what is the lesson of history? And I, I don't know what it is, but the lesson, I think, is to look it in the face. And I don't think we do enough. I think, you know, I've tried to look it in the face and come to my own conclusions, the good, the bad and the uncomfortable. And, and I think that's what we haven't still really come to terms with. And that's why I think you should read Lost on the Map a memoir of colonial illusions by Brian Rostron. Before we head into the final song of our show, I'd like to thank Mwandi Lobi and you and Inglis for everything they do behind the scenes at FMR every month. You guys, you know what you do. It's huge. You enable us to come over and spend a magic hour chatting about books. And of course, what would this show be without all our intrepid reviewers and you, our dear listeners, and our very best exclusive books who sponsor this show every month. As always, I'm your host, Paige Nick. And I look forward to Book Choice again on the first Monday of August. Until then, happy reading. Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za.